My name is Ayçu Çubukçu, and on behalf of the Department of Sociology and the Center for the Study of Human Rights at London School of Economics and Political Science, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the school and present our speaker tonight, Professor Susan Buck-Morse. Tonight's lecture by Professor Buck-Morse is titled Global Civil War, Solidarity by Proxy. It is the fourth annual lecture presented by the Internationalism, Cosmopolitanism, and the Politics of Solidarity Research Group that I convene at LSE, and it will be, without a doubt, a very provocative one. Now, um, I'll admit that I'm very excited. Susan was my undergraduate mentor some 20 years ago, and now introducing a scholar whom one has admired for 20 years is not a very easy task, especially if she's one of the most daring philosophers and intellectual historians of our times. So allow me to stick to the facts. Susan Buckmorse is Distinguished Professor of Political Philosophy at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She is also Professor Emeritus in the Cornell <coughs> University's Government Department, where having been her student could change one's life irreversibly. Trained in continental philosophy, specifically German critical philosophy and the Frankfurt School, Professor Buckmore is a scholar who's been truly disciplined about interdisciplinarity, or transdisciplinarity, as she may prefer to say. Her scholarship crosses the fields of artistry, architecture, comparative literature, cultural studies, German studies, philosophy, history, and visual culture. Her books include The Origin of Negative Dialectics, Theodor Adorno, Walter Benjamin, and the Frankfurt Institute, The Dialectics of Seeing, Walter Benjamin, and the Arcades Project, Dream World and Catastrophe, The Passing of Mass Utopia in East and West, and Thinking Past Terror, Islamism, and Critical Theory on the Left, as well as, I must add, her latest book, which is Hegel, Haiti, and Universal History. But that is not all. Professor Buckmorse is a philosopher who has been committed not only to the task of interpreting the world, but also of changing it. I trust that her lecture tonight, inviting us to think about what revolution and solidarity entail in the 21st century, will proceed from this commitment. Now, let me note for technical reasons that this evening is being audio and video recorded, Technology permitting, we'll have a podcast of the event sometime next week posted online. If you'd like to tweet about it, the suggested hashtag for the event is hashtag LSE Solidarity. It's a tremendous, tremendous pleasure and honor indeed to welcome to LSE Professor Susan Buckmorse. Um, I would call her an exceptional scholar, mentor, and if I may say so, poet of critical theory in the 21st century. I told them that I wouldn't drop it, and I did it right away. Okay. Uh, thank you, I just so much. Uh, it's really, really a pleasure to be here, and we just noted that it was indeed 20 years um, that we have uh, known each other and discussed politics and intellectual ideas and our lives, and uh, it's 
just an honor to be here. Um, okay, so what I'm going to give you is a work in progress, and the first progress is to say that when I was asked for a title, uh, I chose one that had to do with work on um, the 5th century B.C., uh, and uh, since that time, there's been something that's happened uh, called uh, the election of Trump, etc. And also, I was reminded because of um, uh, invitations that it's the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution and the 50th anniversary of the first volume of Capital. So somehow, to talk about civil war in Thucydides' terms seemed um, a little bit too academic. Uh, although the reason I'm working on that has everything to do about the present, but that will be for another lecture another time. What you're going to get today, it, it speaks to those two uh, anniversaries um, and uh, is a work in progress in the sense that the year is not over. Uh, this is a weird kind of thing. Oh, much better. Okay. Uh, even better. Okay. Uh, the year is not over, and uh, I work in a way that you'll see, because at a certain point I've added some more recent modules to the presentation. I work, uh, I like to think, in a way that's uh, indebted to Walter Benjamin, uh, which means that images are the idea, uh, and that uh, particularly when you're dealing with historical topics, uh, they're very helpful to think with. So... Um, I will hopefully hit the right buttons at the right time. And hopefully you'll be able to see it. Let's just do a practice with the first one. And you, this is as bright as it must remain. Is that correct? There's no way we can get it any darker. Okay, so it's not ideal, but I hope it works. Okay, so 100 years after the Bolshevik Revolution, where are we in time? The epistemological form of the question matters, determining the content of the answers that we provide. Regard the standard conception of historical time, and I give it to you here in something I'm sure the younger people do not know, but maybe there are people older enough uh, to have had it hanging in their classroom as it was in my sixth grade classroom, and that is uh, McNally's uh, History of the World, and the map is all about different civilizations and powers waxing and waning and therefore getting more or less of the, um, of the map. Um, it determines time in terms of sovereignty over space with various imperial civilizations waxing and waving, waning over the centuries. This schematic conception sounds innocent enough, but... Notice what happens uh, in the last section. This was actually done in 1950, evidently. It was the last section of this map. And you'll see that there are um, suddenly very, very nice thin lines, and every, every uh, power is understood to be a nation state. Um, so you have uh, the United States is, is kind of a big nation state, and Russia is still just looking like Russia. So it's... Um, it's politically charged. Uh, so look what happens where this edition of the map ends after World War II with the European national timelines reflecting the end of the European empires and with the United States in the dominant position, the beginning of a post-colonial geopolitical order that appears to have left colonialism behind. 
From this time on, the world order is to be organized in terms of nation-states. Historically, some will be in advance of others, some will be behind others, some will be fighting wars of national liberation, but the ordering form remains dominated by the conceptual imaginary of nation-states. All international issues after 1950 presume this national order, and if the Soviet Union continued to pay lip service to the idea of a communist international, the fact remains that in most cases, Soviet state actions after 1950 were conceived in terms of Russian national interests. Now, the nation-state as an epistemological form captures certain realities but conceals others. It cannot recognize the existence of non-state political imaginaries which existed at that time. Negritude, for example, that was born in Paris among the diaspora African and Caribbean intellectuals and developed political theory through literature, poetry, and painting. Negritude provided an alternative form of anti-colonial struggle. It rejected the model of the struggles for national liberation that were themselves a reinscription of the European form of nation-states. Negritude's political goal was a transformation of black consciousness in the context of which Martinique-born Aimé Césaire and Senegal-born Leopold Senghor proposed new forms of transnational solidarity, both French and non-national. In our own time of global connectedness and multiple diasporas, these forms seem strikingly relevant. A serious uh, serious limitation of methodological nationalism, as it's now called, when analyzing post-colonial history is that thinking in terms of nation-states makes the neo-imperial effects of the global economy invisible. One of the most blatant examples of the distortion that national analyses produce is Walt Whitman Rostow's highly influential book published in 1960, The Stages of Economic Growth. There were five such stages, and all nation-states were expected to pass through as they advanced toward the uncritically accepted goal of a modern national economy. The book was subtitled An Anti-Communist Manifesto. Its political purpose was to provide an alternative to the equally stagist conception of time that dominated Marxist discourse, the historically consecutive stages of feudalism, capitalism, and socialism. To reflect on how damaging epistemological forms can be, how they can block a clear analysis of what in fact is happening, we need only recall the path-breaking critique provided by the articulators of dependency theory, writers who replaced the imaginary of nation-states and the Marxist variant of the developmental form. It was Argentinian-born Raúl Prebisch who did the initial empirical research, discovering that the increasing poverty of so-called underdeveloped countries, was directly correlated to the increasing wealth of rich nations. Now, this led to an extraordinarily rich theoretical innovation by writers like André Gunder Frank, Emmanuel Wallerstein, Fernando Enrique Cardozo, Walter Rodney, and Theotonio dos Santos. Their argument, backed up with empirical evidence, was that the wealthy nations of the world needed a sub 
subjugated peripheral group of poorer states in order to remain wealthy. Dependency theory states uh, that the poverty of the countries in the periphery is not because they lack integration into the world system, they are integrated, but because of how they are integrated into that system. This conceptual shift was profound. In terms of economic development, center periphery theory, as it was called, <clears throat> has, shuffled, has shifted our conception of time by reordering our conception of space. The blow to methodological nationalism struck by dependency theory was the necessary precursor to all of post-colonial theory that followed. Now, the historical situation of people organized in nation states depends on the position uh, of those nation states within a common global economic field. There would have been no rise of Europe without the rise of European colonial occupation, the extraction of their natural resources, exploitation of human labor, and accumulation of surplus value in the form of private wealth. And when the era of European colonialism as a political order came to an end, this did not end domination by the economically central countries over the economic peripheries of post-colonial nation states. But the geopolitical map is now shifting as formerly central countries lose hegemony and the powers of global capital expand. <coughs> because of the hegemony of the nation-state model, the only political power that people have today is through the institutions of the specific nation-states in which they are citizens. Um, at the same time, and in contradiction to this political ordering, their fates are tied to those elsewhere. So the problem is if you have a political analysis and a political effectiveness that's inside of nation-state boundaries, uh, but your economic realities are, uh, do not respect those boundaries, then you're in a very difficult political space in which to operate. And it distorts the spatial imaginary because you begin to think that the reason Europe is ahead is because they're smarter, brighter, white, you, you name it, right? Whereas, in fact, they, they've gotten ahead by taking and extracting uh, value from, from the periphery. So that, that was an extremely important innovation uh, to... Uh, to theory. <clears throat> because of the hegemony of the nation, did I just read that? No, but yes. Because of the hegemony of the nation state model, the only political power that people have today is through the institutions of the specific nations in which they are citizens. At the same time, and in contradiction to this political ordering, their fates are tied to those elsewhere. As Southeast Asia, discovered in 1997, Argentina discovered in 1998, and the United States discovered in 2008, the capacity of governments to protect their citizens from the crises within the global economic order is structurally limited. Nationalism continues its political appeal, and yet issues of war and peace, and now with increasing significance, issues of climate change and economical, ecological limits call for global solidarity as a political imperative. All wars today are civil wars. The dilemma of global economic dependency and national political dependency situates us in time. So what are the implications for political practice? <clears throat> 
we can consider three models of practice that have been attempted within the contradictory geopolitical space that I have outlined in order to evaluate their efficacy. We will look at, briefly at three historical examples. The first is the destruction of Allende's government in Chile on September 11, 1973. Allende, openly Marxist, achieved power through free and fair elections with a popular mandate to transform peacefully the national economy through nationalization and collectivization of the means of production. This was a successful socialist revolution through democratic means. Moreover, this was a national revolution consciously aware of the realities of dependency theory or dependency under conditions of free trade. The theorist André Gunter Frank, whom I mentioned, taught sociology and economics at the University of Chile uh, and was involved in reforms under the government of Allende that included as central import substitution policy. And there was another significant factor in the Chilean example. It was the first socialist revolution to make use of the new technologies of network organization that were the prototype for computerized systems. In order to appreciate what this could have meant for the success of socialism, one has only to understand how problematic it was within Soviet socialism to manage an entire economy through the means of central planning. The bureaucracy had to be enormous. It's one of my favorite charts. That's the entire Soviet uh, bureaucracy. And the little ends there, there's even a category called matchsticks, right? So they had to somehow centralize the whole system. During Allende's presidency, a Chilean project called CyberSyn was instituted under the directorship of British operations research specialist Stafford Beer that provided feedback to the central government in real time Here's his uh, proposal, and here's its realization. This was what bureaucracy would be reduced to, just a nice friendly gathering of people considering uh, the data that was coming in. <clears throat> Beer recalls Allende saying that it would be technologically possible now for that centralized point of power to represent the Chilean people in whose interests he served. Rather than a centralized bureaucracy, Allende envisioned returning decision-making power back to the workers in industrial enterprises in order to develop, to develop self-regulation in the factories. Now, three years after taking power, Allende was forcefully, for, forcefully removed by a military coup that was supported by the CIA of the United States. This was a case of neo-imperialism in its most blatant form. This act not only established a brutal military dictatorship under Pinochet, but it instituted the first systematically neoliberal economic agenda based on the theories of the University of Chicago School of Economists. The theories of Friedrich Hayek were particularly implicated. This deadly mixture of nationalistic authoritarianism on the political level, including systematic violence against citizens, and neoliberalism as an economic order would become a prototype for the future. Now, significantly, it was not the non-sustainability of socialist economic planning that destroyed democratically elected socialism in Chile. It was military force. 
domestic and foreign, that ensured the failure of the experiment. The second historical event was November 1989, when the Berlin Wall was dismantled by citizen action, demonstrating that sovereign political imaginaries are often less powerful than they appear to be. At a time when the experts, I remember at Cornell and the the government department, all of the experts were predicting that Germany would stay divided for decades to come, people on the street challenged established wisdom and made another future possible. In the United States, the myth very quickly developed that the wall had fallen miraculously because Ronald Reagan stood in front of it and said, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall. Um, Such a causal fantasy totally ignored the far more significant role of Mikhail Gorbachev, who, as a member of Russia's 60s generation, the Shestidesyatniki, had long before developed Marxist humanist sentiments. Gorbachev was, in fact, a Western Marxist. The model of Glasnost was the proposal for a third way, a democratic form of socialism to replace the Communist Party's monopoly of power. This was the most reasonable direction that history could have taken, but despite Hegel's assertion to the contrary, reason is not the victor in history. And the potential for a third way remained unrealized. I recall that post-Soviet intellectuals supported a third way, particularly in Eastern Europe. They really believed in the Western propaganda that equated free markets and free elections, as if capitalism and democracy were linked together by some inner logic that would allow people in the former Soviets to have, finally, a normal life, normal naïa They had not taken note of events in Chile under Pinochet when neoliberalism was first instituted as a conscious political program and proved itself easily compatible with political authoritarianism. At the time, I was working together with philosophers from Moscow, Minsk, Warsaw, Sofia, Ljubljana, and Dubrovnik, an experience that led to writing the book Dreamworld and Catastrophe, The Passing of Massotopia in East and West, the combined forces of global capitalism and nation-state politics that characterize neoliberalism as a hegemonic structure were very much in evidence during that experience. First, regarding free elections. The United States was strongly opposed to anything like a third way. Um, In Poland in 1989, a public relations firm from the United States was active in producing advertisements for democracy that bore no trace of the trade union movement that was founded by uh, uh, Waleza. Instead, this is what the PR firm came up with, um, a poster with the American Western movie hero John Wayne. Uh, Second, regarding free markets. United States economists came to the former Soviet Union, the population of which was experiencing extraordinary economic deprivation, and promoted as a form of transition to capitalism a policy of extreme economic austerity that has since become standard within nation states experiencing capitalist crisis. And of course the consequence could have been predicted Privatization of state assets produced lopsided capitalist development 
whereby a new hyper-rich class came into being, those Russian oligarchs who are now a global presence among capitalism's cosmopolitan elite. Now the third historical event. As a consequence of the collapse of socialism, the United States assumed unquestioned ideological hegemony over the nation-state political and the neoliberal economic world order. It maintained this role as the dominant global power until nine men armed with paper cutters, the most low-tech form of weapon imaginable, managed to stage the self-destruction of U.S. power on morning television. This iconoclastic act destroyed the image of U.S. invulnerability and the icons of its power by demolishing with U.S. airplanes the Twin Towers of New York City as the symbol of U.S. hegemony over global capitalism and causing the near destruction of the Pentagon and government buildings as well. Now, this act had an effect similar to the fall of the Berlin Wall in that it exposed the imaginary effects of hegemonic power as well as the fact that, with all due respect to Francis Fukuyama, the end of the Cold War was not the end of world history. But it was the end of a certain conception of historical time, shared by both sides in the Cold War, that progress in history was tied to a process of industrial modernization that was not only desirable, but inevitable. 100 years after the success of the Bolshevik Revolution, we have witnessed the end of a certain geopolitical order. But it is not capitalism that has come to an end. Rather, it is the dream shared across the Berlin Wall of harnessing the powers of industrialization to create a utopia for the masses, the East through a utopia of production, the West through a utopia of consumption. This shared dream, based on a belief in historical progress, collapsed two processes, history, historical progress, and economic industrialization, collapsed them into one and called this single historical trajectory modernity. As a consequence of this historical narrative for populations who, narrative comma, for populations who had not yet reached modernity, time itself was put to task. This was nowhere more true than in Bolshevik Russia, Lenin recognized that according to Marxist theory, the socialist revolution ought not to have happened in Russia, which was far behind Europe, particularly Germany, and the United States. A certain constraint on freedom was required, he believed, in order to channel revolutionary energies into modernization. Stalin's five-year plans were attempts to push the process forward at an even faster pace, literally to accelerate time. Uskorenia, acceleration. Soviet modernization was described as a race against time so that any political protest as to the direction of that change or modernization was not allowed because it slowed down the course of history. Stalin initiated what he called the nationalization of time over which he had absolute mastery. The speed of change was itself an act of violence Stalin put an end to the experimentation of the early Bolshevik artistic avant-garde. And most problematically, Soviet planning so completely conflated historical progress with the path the West was taking that there was no questioning of just what kind of modernization 
was, was progressive. The forms that modernization was to take followed closely the path of the capitalist West, so that, for instance, um, Margaret Burke White photographed this as a great Stalinist project when she was in Russia in 1931, and this was the model. It was the Hoover Dam, uh, which was finished in 1935. Um, and this is uh, later, uh, uh, it, it says here, so this was a real race to, to go faster in exactly the same direction that the United States was going. Um, this is 1961, the Niagara Falls Dam, and this uh, it opened the same year. You see how this, this process uh, went forward. Now, hydroelectric power dams and massive systems of delivery uh, were one of the uh, uh, main goals of the Soviet Union, although solar panels and local energy sources were proposed. The Soviet experiment failed because it followed the model of Western capitalism too faithfully. It is, a case, it is a case of the fact that form is not formal. In retrospect, one can only imagine how far ahead the Soviet Union would have been today if it had chosen to develop alternative forms of modernity, not those that have led to the ecological disasters and global warming uh, that is so threatening to the planet. So that's the point that this fantasy of modernity and history was shared on both sides. And it also is true that the Soviet Union had no um, appreciation of underdevelopment in the third world. So Melnikov was a fantastic uh, Soviet uh, architect, uh, and he participated in this extremely ideological project um, for building a lighthouse of Columbus to celebrate Columbus's, quote, discovery of uh, the new world. Um, so if modernity describes the 500-year period of history of European expansion that began in 1492 with the myth of the, of the discovery by Christopher Columbus of the New World, ushering in the long durée of coloniality, then not only is it over in an empirical sense, post-colonialism marks the breaking point, but it is over as an idea, a shared imaginary, a political hope, a utopian dream. Uh, and just to give an example of how widely shared this was, Brasilia, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful capital city. The building of this city was uh, uh, completed in 41 months as part of the president's plan to complete 50 years in five years. So the same idea is you accelerate time, you make it go faster, right? So that you catch up with the rest of the world. Now, uh, and then I... I point to Brazil in this case because this, I don't know if this was covered a lot, but it was in the United States that the bay where everybody had to go swimming and everything for the Olympics was totally um, polluted uh, as the logical consequence of development capitalist style. <clears throat> so we have no need to lament the passing of the dream worlds of modernity. They were dismissive of non-European civilizations and implicitly if not explicitly racist. The violence of forced modernization wreaked havoc not only on the environment, but also on the diversity of cultures. 
Any desire to return to the good old days of capitalist America or Stalinist Russia is simply a bad case of modernist nostalgia. Now, uh, for the for the uh, best, uh, I've shown you now. This is the third image that has uh, Kozlopov. He, he is the one who the cover of my book is a Kozlopov uh, Sotz artist. Um, uh, production. And here he takes this Coca-Cola, it's the real thing, Lenin, and fantasizes it being in, uh, in, the, uh, in Times Square. And then he has uh, George Washington on one side, Father Knows Best. And I don't know if you're aware that Castro is a convertible sofa company uh, in the United States. So he put that one in. Uh, I th- but this is the kind of irony that the kind of failure of both both uh, methods, or both uh, <coughs> both dreams and modernity, uh, uh, brought into the art- artist's consciousness. <clears throat> At the same time, it cannot be denied that the idea of modernity had enormous power. It shaped the aspiration of people worldwide. Human beings believed that there was no limit to what science could accomplish: combating sickness, eliminating poverty eliminating distances, landing on the moon. The rivalry between capitalist modernity and socialist modernity was only about the means, not the end. The end was a dream of human progress. And in that sense, modernity could lay legitimate claim to universality as its goal. But here is the irony of history. The hegemony of the United States was dependent on its national dominance in the world economy and global leadership in the path of modernization. And the very success of global capitalism, and this is what's ironic, has now turned against that nation which most successfully spread its influence. Enter Donald Trump. Now, every one of the means that the United States used against others during its century of hegemony is now being introduced at home. When it comes to the distortions of power, pardon me, the distortions by power caused by neoliberalism, we in the United States are now catching up with the rest of the world. First, consider the election process. Without doubt, the Russian government interfered with the process of democratic elections in the United States, favoring Trump over Hillary Clinton last fall. Well, I am certainly not happy with the outcome, but one can hardly cry unfair. When the CIA has consistently prevented democratic outcomes in elections abroad since the time of its founding, not only in Chile, not only in Poland, but disastrously in 1953 in the case of Mossadegh's democratically elected government in Iran. And it has not ceased to do so right up to the interference of the U.S. to keep Yeltsin in power, even after Yeltsin's alcoholism had made him totally incompetent until Putin seized the moment and made his own successful bid for the Russian presidency. Second, in the United States, we are now experiencing the loss of control over the national economy due to its integration into the global economy, echoing what so many other countries have experienced that motivated many working-class people to vote for Trump. But Trump's promises are in direct contrast to his own economic situation. 
If in the 20th century it made sense for progressive movements of liberation to press forward with a policy of import substitution and other forms of economic nationalism, such an agenda is not possible today. Trump's own global network of business connections makes clear that building a protective wall around the U.S. economy is a fantasy, and he knows it. So these are his business connections. Um, But you see, if you make something concretely visible, like a wall between Mexico and the United States, you you produce concrete evidence that the fantasy of separating the U.S. economy is, in fact, real, you see. It's very clever. Uh, So authoritarian national regimes uh, with a hyper-neoliberal, within a hyper-neoliberal system of capitalism are a danger to peace that must be taken seriously. It is why I remain convinced that the only possible resistance to both must be devoted to a global humanity in the most inclusive understanding of the term. Whereas the corporate director of General Motors could say in the 1950s with reason that what's good for General Motors is good for the USA, today when right-wing populist Donald Trump says he is going to make America great again, What that slogan, in fact, means is that he wants to turn the government itself into a corporation. This is a hostile takeover by corporate capitalism of a democratically constituted state. Astoundingly, we just discovered a few weeks ago, that was the end of March, that the son-in-law of Trump, Jared Kushner, has a new office within the White House with the title Office of American Innovation. Its purpose, in his own words, is to run the United States, quote, like a great American company, end quote. This slogan is not populism. It is neoliberalism in its most cynical form. You can imagine what we are to expect. Under cover of anti-bureaucratic reform, federal government programs will be either destroyed outright or their activities will be outsourced to private companies, and federal policies will be judged by market values. Of course, this ignores the very raison d'etre of the federal bureaucracy that has expanded precisely because of the increasing imperative to control capitalist enterprises, not to become one. Interestingly, however, there is a precedent even for this. In the 1980s, under Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, who remained in power until 2003, The model for Malaysia became explicitly that of the corporation. So we are catching up now with this model. They called it Malaysia Inc., right? It was the name for national unity, trade unions were sidelined, and public industries underwent privatization. But in comparison to the clearly patriotic message of Mohammed in his proposal for Malaysia, Malaysia Inc., the Trump family is proposing something quite different. In his proposal for the Office of American Innovation, Kirshner's wording is astounding. Our hope is that we can achieve success in efficiencies for our customers, who are the citizens. So the category of citizen is to be eradicated. This is an extraordinary claim. It is truly revolutionary, but it is not the revolution that I'm here to talk to you about today. So 
let's just say that national capitalism is a thing of the past, and despite the right-wing populist slogans, for example, Make America Great Again, national populations are losing control not only over capital, but over their governments as well. Under these conditions, appeals to nationalism cannot help but rely on exclusionism, racism, xenophobia, uh, and that kind of mentality. So they go naturally together. Meanwhile, the center-periphery argument has a new articulation in the empirical work of Thomas Piketty. Piketty says that the most, says with the most modern mathematics that Marxian economic science is correct. If you look on a global level, you will see that income inequality uh, keeps expanding. This is the United States. I think you're purple here, UK. Uh, Over the years, there's the 1920s, of course, when it was at an all-time high, and then you had the Depression. Now it's on the way up again, but also third-world countries. So the growing gap between rich and poor is a global phenomenon, uh, which is borne out by the uh, the empirical data that come from national economies, wherever you look. Um, The rich are getting richer, and poor, poor, even if the economic hegemony of the center is slipping considerably. Democracy has succeeded in one case, however. The global oligarchy is increasingly international. And I want to show you these are billionaires of the world, and you know, they come from all ethnic backgrounds, all religions. It's really quite wonderful to see. When nation states lose uh, financial control over capitalism, when the ruling capitalist family plans an unfriendly takeover of the U.S. federal government, the only democracy that results from this is the de-westernization and de-northification of the global oligarchy. The rich are now multinational, multiracial, and multicultural. And this thin sliver of humanity is spread across the globe. National elites are pulled into global networks of power. Their move to global interests is not matched by globally responsible government forms. Populist authoritarianism threatens to draw nationally divided people into a world war. And I don't say that lightly. This is the real concern that I have. And crucially important, the environmental crises that we face produce an imperative imperative for us to think and act together across every line of difference. Capitalism on its own cannot be relied upon for the organization of a good society. Market forces cannot produce a social bond. The dominance of the profit motive is not good for people or for any living thing. And so we still need a revolution, indeed lots of them. But how will the idea of revolution survive the passing of the modernity to which it owes its political life? What form will revolutions take? From recent history, certain conclusions can be drawn. First, the nation is the place of citizen power, not the revolutionary goal. We need to work on national levels where people have some power over their governments and over economic exploitation, political oppression, and all forms of discrimination. Social justice and social welfare are still the political goal, but they must be thought through 
on a planetary scale. Two, national resistance, or as a consequence, national resistance, global consciousness. And if form is not formal, can we, what, then what can we say about the form of revolutions in the 21st century? What has history taught us there? First, the revolution does not happen in advanced economies. Nowhere has a Marxist revolution been achieved as a stage out of the contradictions inherent in the societies most advanced in economic terms. Such contradictions, at least we have two examples, World War I, World War II, such contradictions are more likely to lead to war. <clears throat> Rather, revolutions have had some of their greatest successes in places where their realization, conceptually understood within Marxist theory, would have been next to impossible, or at least highly unlikely, Russia, 1917, China, 1949, Cuba, 1959. Moreover, forced modernization, the acceleration of time, should not be the revolutionary means. Temporalities are multiple, and that is a good thing. And as a consequence, the failed attempts at social transformation are not disproven because of historical defeat. Uh, nothing, therefore, is superseded in history. Nothing is necessarily lost. Uh, within each revolution, there have been other strands of revolt, moments of what Maximiliano Tomba is calling radical insurgency, that went far beyond the historical moment. These insurgencies produced leg legacies of importance for us today. We might mention, within the historical context of the French Revolution, Haiti's radical elimination of the institution of slavery, not gradually, as Europe and the U.S. thought it should be, but immediately, not only for Haitians, but for anyone who reached Haiti's shores, and this was the first time in human history that that had been achieved. In Russia, radical demands of the social revolutionaries within the context of the Bolshevik Revolution were the ones that succeeded. That was the call for peace bread, and land. And it was taken over by Lenin, despite its non-Marxist origins. These slogans brought him revolutionary success. And I just want to show you, this is really nice. This is a decree on Mir. And, and it occurs to me that the word for peace in Russian is Mir. But then remember what Marx writes about the Russian Mir? It's the village assembly that he says might be possibly a way to, you know, not have to go through the bourgeois revolutionary stage because there was something already in place uh, that had a socialist um, spirit. So that's interesting um, that the word mir had these two meanings. And so what the idea was of a local assembly was it was what brought peace. Um, and then I have just have another one because I found them and they were kind of beautiful. This is the decree on land. I don't have it on bread, but kleb is the most wonderful thing you ever ate in your life if you have old Russian kleb, but now they have awful white stuff. But it, was, it really kept you alive. Okay, next. Um, revolutionary practice is a laboratory of experiment. So experimentation, not vanguardism. 
this is something I talk about a lot in my book, the time of the avant-garde, which I consider the, I, I make a distinction that isn't always made, an avant-garde is a kind of artistic avant-garde, is not the same as the time of the vanguard, which is the party notion of time. Avant-garde culture is experimental. It engages the public. Its projects are not immediately serviceable for the goals of the party. Here are some early examples from the Bolshevik period. This is bringing culture to the people, the famous agitprop trains. Um, uh, Obama got us a new national librarian, head of the uh, Library of Congress, and she has now trucks that go out of the Library of Congress to local libraries throughout the United States. So it's the same idea. You you bring it to the people. Um, This is my favorite children's book, The Story of Two Squares. This is get you into the new forms, right? The second one is They Come to Earth from Far Away, Isdaliko. Bam! They hit it, and then they build something new in its place. It's a little bit propaganda, but it's also quite lovely. That's by uh, Lizitsky. Uh, here is the idea of bringing these forms into daily life, the whole idea of revolution as a transformation of daily life. This is, of course, very famous, Kazimir Melev, which is designed for a teapot that has a kind of locomotive look. Uh, and here we have folding furniture that was invented. You know the folding chairs, the, the simple folding chairs? They were invented by a Soviet um, designer. Uh, and this one I love. This is <laughs> Tatlin's pattern for everyday clothes in Novi Beat, which is uh, uh, new every day. Uh, and this was a newspaper, and you opened it up, and there would be these pattern pieces that are here on the front page, but they'd be actual pages of the newspaper, so you could cut them out, and then you could put them on cloth, and you could make your coat uh, on Tatlin's design. Um, and then uh, the, the idea was not to demolish all old buildings, but to simply produce a kind of montage of the old and the new. And this is the uh, Milnikov, who was the one who did the, uh, the lighthouse for Columbus. Uh, here is his design for her solar power. And this one I love. I mean, this was they, how they thought you should honor Karl Marx by building a statue of Marx that looked like this. But uh, it was a design only. It was not approved for being built. But think of this. Think of Karl Marx and your concept of Karl Marx with this image in mind and how you might have a very different conception of what it is to be a Marxist. Okay, so um, the time of the avant-garde is not the same as the vanguard. Oh, I already read that, didn't I? Okay, fine. Um, And here we come, oh yeah, here we come to my new experiment here. Okay, this is the end of what I've said so far. No blueprint of history, no metaphysics of revolution, no party dictatorship. And now, technological development will take the path of social relations. This is, you know, against technological determinism. But what I'm beginning to trace, and what's really, really fascinating, is um, this will bring Rodchenko and Benjamin and our time into, into a constellation. Okay, so we'll begin with Rodchenko's photo of a stack of folders. Um, the idea of putting a bureaucrat putting all kinds of stuff in folders was considered very problematic for the revolutionaries. So uh, the, the, the idea of putting it on the cover uh, with the, down with um, 
bureaucratism, uh, which is written on the side there, uh, was, was a great idea and fit in very well with the uh, proposals of a man by the name of Kerzhenskzev, who tried to restructure and reorganize. In other words, the idea would, what would be the social relations that would transform the bureaucracy into other kinds of forms? And I am sure that Walter Benjamin, for those who like Benjamin as I do, got that idea in 1927 when he visited Ashalakis in Moscow because when he came back in One Way Street, he writes, already today, as the contemporary mode of knowledge production demonstrates, the book is an obsolete mediation between two different card filing systems for everything essential is found in the note boxes of the researcher who writes it and the reader who studies it assimilates it into his or her own note file. Now these, you see the, the more network kinds of relationships, those are the ones that are being uh, experimented with, and this guy was absolutely crazy about note cards and note boxes. Uh, but of course that is a kind of anticipation of um, this, which is uh, an early sorting card uh, used by the first computers. So we can uh, begin to see how something takes shape there, and we can then look at the way in contemporary uh, social media people relate to each other. And you could begin to think about that, but not that the form is sufficient to produce the content. It depends on the social relations. That's going to be the point of that. It's not totally worked out, but that's the idea on that one. And next, historical development is not automatically progress. And again, Benjamin, Marx said the revolutions were the locomotives of history. Perhaps it is otherwise the reaching of humanity riding in that train for the emergency break. And this this was a very popular uh, quotation that you found during the Occupy movements, at least in the United States. I don't know if it was true here here in uh, Britain. So... um, This is Lizitsky's new man. And I want to say this. If revolution is an idea, not in Hegel's meaning of the idea, but in the pre-modern, even transcendent sense, even a platonic sense, even a theological sense, um, but um, then empirical history remains open to redemption. We can insist on inheriting those ideas that came to appearance in human practice, even in transitory ways. Uh, and this is another experiment. This is a, from a 1300s copy of the book of Genesis of the Bible. and I just find it interesting. I, I'm not sure exactly why, but I do. Okay, more familiar ground. The working class is not the subject-object of history. There is no necessity of privileging the workers as the revolutionary subject. The working class is not the Hegelian in itself and for itself of historical unfolding. It is not a metaphysical principle, which may seem rationally convincing but if you're a theorist, but empirically it is not valid. It is not an empirical description of what has gone on in the past and is likely to go on in the future, and as a consequence, there are no primary and secondary contradictions. Uh, Feminism was supposedly, the the feminist demands were a secondary contradiction, race demands were a secondary contradiction, according to the original orthodox Marxists. Uh, So just to make that point, we can 
go quickly and just ask what is wrong with these pictures? And we know what's wrong with them. They're all white men. Uh, the leaders of the bourgeois revolutions, were, which continued into the 19th and 20th century, were seen as white men. Uh, instead, then, what would be the revolutionary subject? Is there a new subject? Um, and I call to your attention the theorizing of the Bolivian René Zavaleta Mercado, whose book, Toward a History of the National Popular in Bolivia, is just now being translated into English by University of Chicago Press. And since Gayatri Spivak thinks it's a great book, you better believe we will be hearing about it. The idea is not to replace the global working class as a category with another category of identity, indigenous or peasant, but with a movement that he, this uh, Bolivian writer, calls abigaramiento, which means heterogeneous or motley. The specifics of a political situation in a particular time and place produce a composite of political actors whose common practice is what makes them organic. It's what they do together that makes them organic. This means that organic movements are always motley, always impossible to locate on some scale of class or race or indigenous identity. The composition of the revolutionary class emerges as a response to a common crisis. Let me be very simple. The composition of the revolutionary class depends on what people do. The solidarity that is produced in the act of, the so of social mobilization has the potential to set up a new intersubjectivity, as Avaleta Mercado would say. If there is no blueprint for determining the proper strategy, if there, no prior theoretical knowledge will enable the soi-disant leaders to control a situation, then revolutionary moments are by definition open-ended. Anarchy is a necessary tendency. Party dictatorship was wrong as a political concept in 1917, and it is wrong as a political concept today. You cannot know how to act without others, without seeing others act. No transcendental subject, no universal subject allows you that view. Revolutionary subjectivity is the consequence, is the consequence of conjunctural organization. In short, the, re the collective is plural. Now a closing word on class warfare. Warren Buffett, the very wealthy, second wealthiest man in the United States, said there is class warfare all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making the war and we're winning. Right? Class warfare exists and the wealthy are winning. But the model of revolutionary practice is putting a stop to class warfare, war's elimination, not its perpetuation. Class warfare is a means of, as a means of revolutionary violence has not turned out well. So we must refuse the fetishization of revolutionary violence. Now, if there are other political activists in the room, and I'm sure you all are, uh, and social movements, I'm sure you've all experienced that moment when, among the organizers, someone calls out that we must be prepared not only for active resistance but for armed struggle. The claim that pacifism is the most murderous ideology and that those who refuse the cult of violence are revisionists 
gradualists and quislings. Now that's a macho move, even when it's made by women, and even when it claims as revolutionary wisdom, and what it claims as revolutionary wisdom is pure naivete. I want to go on record as saying that nothing in my political experience, nothing in my historical experience, nothing in my experience as a researcher, writer, or thinker has convinced me that the cult of violence, the physical destruction of the enemy as a chosen method, is a progressive political strategy. All wars, and particularly class wars, are civil wars and foreign wars both at once. The enemy is not and cannot be neatly divided, and the consequence is physical and psychical destruction. Yes, capitalism kills people daily, but capitalism is not itself a political agent. To personify capitalism as if it evilly controlled the world by its own cunning of, re cunning of reason is a myth of the modern era that we need to do without. And instead, recall that in the last century, passive resistance has been a powerful weapon. Um, and I'm just going to go very quickly here because I know we're out of time almost. Uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King did a really pretty good job. Uh, he didn't eliminate all racism in the United States. And Gandhi also did a pretty good job. Uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't deny the need for a radical critique. And this is a famous liber liber uh, liberation theologist. So what to do? That happens to be those words in multiple languages. <clears throat> so it seems to me the greatest change has been in the culture of resistance. It is now experimental. Uh, there are multiple movements and revolts. There are withdrawals. There are multiple strategies used, and no one method can claim to be the only. Um, and here we can go very quickly. What I find, and I know this is, uh, people will say, well, these haven't worked in a kind of operational way to change history. But they, as an organizational form, are still in their infancy. And the first one was February 15, uh, 2003, just before George Bush invaded Iraq when the first movement went around the world and everybody uploaded pictures from Australia all the way around for 24 hours and all of these uh, pictures then come up. Uh, and this happens to be India and I will of course find um, London. Uh, you can find any city. Uh, they, they all participated and it really was quite a remarkable thing. Of course it did not stop the war. I'm not saying that it did. But I am saying that the visibility of a global movement among national citizenries on a political issue where there could be agreement in a kind of universal sense was a new form of resistance and it has uh, it had another round of successes in certain ways in the Arab Spring we still talk about it, Gezi in Turkey and of course the Indignados in Madrid and Spain women's liberation, uh, and the new movements against um, the uh, xenophobia that have been extremely powerful in the United States. This is Women's Day 
that was a marvelous, marvelous event. So I got a lot of those. You people are good. You're always out there. That was just last weekend for the science uh, that uh, global warming is not a, a fiction. I love this, no one is illegal. I mean, there's something empirically accurate about that, even though politically it's totally wrong, right? <laughs> I'll just have that up in the last. Okay. Um, so what it means is numbers matter. Okay, so, so um, this is then my concluding paragraph. The global crowd is a power block. It takes its place among other power blocks as an alternative to Western hegemony or to Chinese, the Chinese state's bid for superpower status. This power block, however, has no bars of entry. It performs for a worldwide public. Its political effectiveness depends on a synchronicity of actions within our shared political time zone. It has the power to challenge the practices of the national security state and global capital alike. The very fact that it is a player in global space, not the only one, but the one most open to the world's immensely varied populations, varied religions, varied genders, varied languages, varied traditions, anticipates a changing world order of weak boundaries and wide responsibilities. And it brings to international diplomacy something that this field has never even pretended to deploy in its most enlightened Western nation-state form, and that is democracy. Not the, technological, not the technology of global communication, but the claim to democratize global space by means of it. This marks what is new in the present situation. To speak about, to, and with this new global force, this motley, heterogeneous group, is to help it to emerge. Thank you very much. Thank you very Shall much. Shall I come back? And yes, if you like. Um, somebody's got to ask to the what to do question. I'm sure somebody will. Um, but the floor is open for questions. Comments? Yes. There is a microphone that's going around. If you could briefly introduce yourself, that would be great. Thank you. My name is Angelic. I'm a PhD student at the University of Westminster uh, School of Law. I'm researching um, the issue on coloniality in infrastructure power tension in Brazil. And my case study is the hydropower dam, uh, Belo Monte Hydropower Complex, which is a turn into big infrastructure. And we go back inside. But my question is, um, you mentioned Aimee Césaire. And I'm quoting him, Europe is indefensible. Um, and then you mentioned uh, the necessity of having hope and peaceful means. Yes. 
And we see, again, as in the 60s, 70s, um, the U.S. influence over Latin American politics. And we have coup d'etats in at least five states in, in Latin America today. And they're all, we, we have a clue that they're all, again, sponsored and totally encouraged and supported by U.S. intentions. And as in the U.S., as in here, and as in Brazil, we have a middle class that loves the oppressor. Uh, we don't understand whether they identify the size of the problem, and we take the size of the big businessmen. So my question is, with the businessmen in front of everything, including armies, weapons, and the created necessity imposed by media, which is the, ar the main army of capitalism, how can we face them without violence if we are suffering this violence historically okay. and daily? Okay, uh, fair enough question. Here's my answer. I don't want the violent few to dominate the others, even if the others are incorrect. They have the wrong consciousness. They shouldn't feel that way. It goes against their interests. They are wrong, yes. But should violence succeed in putting us in power who say that, the only way we can keep power is in opposition to the majority. And that's too big a price to pay because the form is not formal. In other words, the form of taking power will determine the outcome. So we have no alternative except to convince those people that they are part of the 99%, which they are. And if we can't do that, then there's no way that violence is going to increase the possibility. It just doesn't work. Empirically, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. And I know that it should work, because Marx should be right, and those who risk violence should be right, but it simply does not work. I am holding against violence, just to make this point. <laughs> of course, no one wants to wake up in the morning aware that they bombed Syria yesterday. But in Harvard in the evening, they're not talking about Syria. Right, so, but, that's right, they're not, but they should be. And I think there were moments, like for instance, they should be, right, okay. But they, there were, I think the, the Arab Spring was one of the most beautiful moments because it was not started in the advanced West. It was... Okay. I'll, I'll no, have of to course do. they do, of course they do. But that, does that make you stop? You know, you're going to die. Does that make you stop living? I mean, you know, there's, there's some way that... Uh, uh, you know, as they say in Russian, it could be worse. Okay, on that note, let's take another question. Um, yes. Thank you very much for this talk. My name is Clemens Huber, and I'm, I'm a PhD student at Sussex, and I study the fort of Hannah Arendt. And recently I read your work on Hegel and Haiti, and I have to say that... I'm a big fan. Now I would like to take up the issue on violence. And since I'm working on Hannah Arendt, I might say a few words. 
Also, Hannah Arendt has written a work on revolution, which has many flaws. But regarding violence, she makes a good point, in my opinion. The most likely outcome of violence is more violence. There is not a straightforward relationship between means and ends in politics. And so I urge to be careful before um, violence is chosen as a means. You know, it, there's, a, there's a philosophical reason for that, too, because uh, in, in Western philosophy, it's the universal subject, right, which is supposedly um, accessible and uh, fundamentally to be trusted in some sort of notion of... In other words, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful phrase in, 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 uh, in Lenin's time, when the leader of Lenin's opposition, there was an opposition party, and they were mainly social revolutionaries, stood up in the Duma and said, Vladimir Ilyich, I know you prefer another kind of working class because this working class is not behaving according to its interests, but this is the one you have. You know? Uh, and, and there's something in this uh, 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 that, that is lost when we get to the notion of a collective subjectivity that is somehow universal in abstract sense. Um, and, and so I find that... Um, a problem that's built in to Western philosophy since the time of Kant, the whole notion of transcendental subjectivity. And that's one of the aspects we were talking about earlier today that one could just, I will say it, put in the garbage pin of history. But, of course, we can't say that because anything is redeemable, I said at another part of the talk. Okay, there's one question in the front here. Thank you very much. very we had that briefly uh, after the classical Fukuyama's famous of the end of history. We've also got the constant revolution. The, the late professor at Halliday, I was privileged to have a conversation with, who wrote about that. Do you think the concept of revolution uh, and the different forms of a political, cultural, social is still relevant to the problems we face today? Mm. The concept of revolution itself. Well, it has to be re, reimagined, right? Um, uh, but I do think that uh, it would be revolutionary if we were able to have um, people not people who have to organize on a national level, not just organize on national issues. We have precedents for that. We have the World Social Forum in its early years. We have uh, the, uh, the ecology movement, which is global. There are issues that are global uh, that, are, that are of necessity organizing across national lines. And that doesn't mean that you give up on your political struggles in your own country. Uh, but what would a revolution look like? Do I have a definition of revolution? No, I don't. But the fact is that we could, uh, that we know what revolutionary looks like. We may not know what the revolution looks like, but the, the adjective still has uh, traction as a semantic category. Uh, it was revolutionary when the United States elected Obama. It was not the revolution, but it was revolutionary. These moments do happen, and they are, if we're Benjaminians, you don't have to be, but I am, they're temporary, they're transient, that's the best word for it, they're transient, but they do appear. Any other thoughts? Yes, the woman, yes. Thank you so much for the talk. Um, this is more actually just a clarification, but I just wanted if you could say a little bit more about uh, the mob, the 
Right. Or to what extent? That's a good question. Something mm-hmm. different. Is it, I just can't. I just can carry multitude. multitude. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay. So uh, why don't I adopt that word multitude? One is timing. Uh, they wrote that book in the year 2000. And that was before 2003, all of those examples I showed. And to me, the word multitude is somewhat passive. It's descriptive. It's not about an actual organized force. Um, this idea of motley that comes from Latin America is an analysis of movements that existed there. So it, the, the, the idea is not just a kind of ontological description, but a political uh, engaged practice that might be named. Uh, and that would be my difference from, from uh, Hart and Negri. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Sunday, after the French uh, first round election, I saw a diagram, and what struck me was, uh, of, the, of France and how people voted. Mm-hmm. And it was quite amazing, the similarity between um, the American election where the vote the Trump uh, voters were and where the um, Democratic votes were. And, and it was amazingly similar to the Brexit. And, one of, and my point being that um, there is such a divide between, the in America, the bi-coastal elites and here the cosmopolitan educated classes and in France, the people who voted for Macron versus um, Le Pen and the French United. So these things, the pattern is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you, uh, my question is, you, you you kind of implied that the that we have to convince we we being the, the urban elite have to convince the others, the people in flyover America, the people in the depressed areas here and in France, to that that their that their interests are are one and the same. And my point is that that just isn't happening and it will not happen. Can I answer that? Because I want to say this. The working class did not vote its class interest in these cases. They vote for Le Pen. They vote for Brexit. They vote for Trump. But you want to know something? That wonderful, educated, cosmopolitan class didn't vote its class interest either. You know, any money you have invested will do better when global capital wins. Not any, but you get my point. Uh, so it, we're not talking about class interest. We're talking about having a certain kind of experience. And actually, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't actually believe, and I haven't seen the, the, uh, the maps that you're talking about, but uh, if you look at the United States, for instance, and you go down to the county levels, it's very mixed. It's a mixed bag. There's no, you cannot demographically divide people. And then I would add something else to it, which I think is extremely important. We are in a situation, Adorno used to say, what did he say, two things, the two bad halves, they don't add up to, you know, there's no safe middle. What we've got on the one hand is global capital, and that's the only cosmopolitan global force we have. And what we have on the other hand is national uh, xenopho- nationalistic xenophobia, but it's the only political power we have. So there is this enormous contradiction, to use a Marxist example or language, between the, the economic reality and the political reality. And the elections of these people are totally symptomatic, totally symptomatic. But as Adorno would say, you don't make the, you can't make the contradiction go away in your thought 
or in your politics, it's real. That contradiction is real. So that's the space in which we're operating. Um, but we're always half wrong. We who are a cosmopolitan end up wanting, you know, wanting a, a failed political project called the European Union to keep functioning. Why do I say failed? Because I, my grandfather was Greek and I have friends there still, and that's not the way to treat a political friend, right? So th this, it, this is the situation. There is no, one's, no one has the right answer, and so one can be humble mm -hmm. about, the, uh, about the, the mistakes that the others are making. Are you sure that you're not undervaluing the cultural differences? Um, for, just to, not yeah. without being simplistic. The people go to Eastern universities, play lacrosse. The people in farmland, the people working on farms, they go to NASCAR, they drink beer. The people, it's, the people in, this, in Midwest America consider abortion number one priority. The people in New yeah, York City the on the Women's March consider that utter nonsense. No, you're right. There are differences, cultural differences. But uh, uh, do I think that any of those positions are 100% right and the others are 100% wrong? No. I happen to like beer. Oh, okay. And so do a few Brits. Sorry. Sorry, Susan. <laughs> One last question. There's a woman in the back. Yeah, that's you. Um, and then... Yeah, hi, and thanks for the talk. It was really interesting. And uh, now I'd just like to start with the uh, with saying that uh, as a general belief, also I do not think that violence eventually achieves much. Uh, but there is a particular, more recent example which kind of makes me rethink that a little bit, and uh, that is, say, the case of Nepal, mm -hmm. uh, because Nepal, till about ten to twelve years back, had a had this people's war led by the Maoist party over there and eventually it was uh, consciously and deliberately withdrawn by the party who then decided to enter into electoral politics. Of course, uh, the trajectory after that has been highly like you know, splintered and the party has broken apart and all. But what I'm trying to um, understand through that is that they, because uh, it was a result of the people's war at the time that led to certain significant achievements mm -hmm. of overturning the monarchy and setting in a more constitutional, more democratic right. uh, polity. So right. how does one look at it? Is it maybe a certain amount of violence? Is it required well, well, to jumpstart? But, but you criticized your own point by saying, of course, now it isn't working. You know, uh, there's always a joke in the United States. We have one uh, holiday that everyone shares. It's called Thanksgiving. Everyone, of course, because we killed, we did genocide on the Indians who supposedly, supposedly gave us turkeys. And uh, so we cook these turkeys and we sit around a table and you will never find a family sitting around the table where people agree politically. So uh, it's, that's another point to the cultural problem, right? It's a joke in the United States that no one in the same family, you know, and I always ask my students, everyone's on the left, I say, is everyone in your family on the left too? Do you come from the culture that makes you on the left? None of the hands go up. So uh, on the, uh, that's a little bit to the last point more than your point. On your point, I, I want to also say, and that was going to be the first talk if I was going to have given it here in October, uh, all revolutions are also civil wars. And we have this empirical way of saying, oh, if they're a successful civil war, we call them a revolution. If they're unsuccessful, we call them a civil war. In either case, you are killing family members, friends, neighbors. And that is very hard to have truth and re reconciliation about. 
So, and I very carefully worded that, saying it should never be the strategy of choice. I'm not saying that in all cases there's never violence. It's not really a pacifist position I'm taking. I'm taking a position as a, an activist and as a historian of activist movements. And there I think that we really have to be very careful when we say, great, we had victory, we killed more of them than they, us, and now everybody's voting for whoever. Uh, because what you are doing then, and this is, um, I should somehow have made this clearer, you're making it the moral thing. We are right, they are wrong. We are good, they are bad. We, uh, we represent the poor and the whatever, and they are the horrible, rich, fat bourgeoisie, which they may be. But you, we've already produced this morality play, and there's just no way you can, you can produce the revolution that we need if that's your strategy. Okay, on that negative note, <laughs> uh, thank you very much to Professor Susan Buck-Morse, and thank you very much for coming tonight.